0: Yes, this is a special blessing to be together tonight, to spend that way all day and throughout this week, and I'm surprised that if we wake up tomorrow morning, it'll be Friday morning, and it's kind of interesting how this week has gone by. And this has been a tremendous joy to be here for my wife and I, and we want to thank you for the kindness and love and, and the uh, sharing of your hearts. We've heard some very, very beautiful stories from you, and some of you are, have been struggling too with some things, and... And God understands that and loves us. And the difficulties in your life and mind does not change his attitude and care for us at all. But he's much nearer to us than what we realize. And sometimes in life you get to the place where you find out what all God was doing when you thought it was impossible darkness and you thought it was the most lonely moment possible. And then you discover, as you look back over the pages of your life, what God was doing there that you knew nothing about. And then if you would worship Him because of that and bow down before Him because of that, you would find your life drawn to Him nearer than ever it's been before. And so that is what we want to preach to you tonight, that that God does care about the most difficult things you've ever faced. And some of you have faced difficult things, and more of us have. And you know, I was on the phone several times since we are here, and today with a very desperate family, living many, many miles from here. And husband and wife were on the phone together. They had their phones set so they both could talk at the same time, concerned about a son of theirs and their family. And here's a father and mother desperate for a son. And, uh, I've never met this father and mother, and i never met their son. But they were looking for some help for their family. So what do you say to a mother on the phone? A mother's heart, what do you say to a daddy? What do you say to the son, 21 years of age? Yeah, I would like you to, oh yes, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting some things here at this Bible school. You probably don't know what the subject is. I always take for granted you'd know it. But the subject tonight is, they gave this subject to me It's titled, uh, Healing for the Hurting. The two H's in there, it shouldn't be hard to remember. Healing for the Hurting. I'd like us to go to uh, Luke chapter 4 to start this message. We want to meditate this evening on a text it explains, as I understand it, both the purpose and the extent of our Lord's ministry. Now, just want you to think about that sentence you just heard there, and was, you, I said it so fast you probably didn't know it. You were looking for a verse in your Bible, didn't know what I was saying. Uh, your mind just kind of skipped out right there, and, and so we'll try it again. It explains the purpose of Christ's ministry and the extent of it. And let's just read these verses. This is Luke chapter four, verses eighteen through twenty-one. He's speaking here, he's reading really from the book of Isaiah, and there were not chapters in Isaiah at the time he was reading it, probably not, but, but he was reading from there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now we know that Jesus, when he was here, he ministered to the tripartite man. And when I say that, I mean the three aspects of the nature of all of us, yours and mine, the body and the soul and the spirit of man. He ministered to all of those things in us he ministered to our bodies he did that by feeding people he did that by healing people he did that he ministered to the souls of men we'll see that here in just a moment and he ministered certainly to the spirit of men he preached to them the truth that would save their souls the water of life the words i speak unto you they are spirit and they are life he he ministered to the threefold man and and especially now this evening to the to the soul of man, the heart of man, the emotions of man, the feelings of man, the things that so very easily are upset and disturbed in us. And this word healing is used in this title. We're not referring to your blindness or to your leprosy. We're not referring to a hip out of joint or to a muscular dystrophy or to some kind of cancer. We're not referring to the physical things that need healing in your life. This this title is referring to emotional healing or it's referring to the struggles that we have in our hearts. It's referring to that, uh, that set of feelings we have that are somehow damaged. That's what we're referring to. That's what we're looking at tonight. Broken hearted it says here in this 18th verse. And at the end of the verse it says, them that are bruised. In Spanish that says, those that are oppressed. And that means in Greek that something is pushing you down. There's a weight on top of you that you can hardly handle. It's just too much. And you know that happens to you physically. If I had asked the strongest boy in this Bible school to come up front here, and I don't know who that would be. I asked the strongest one to come up front here, and I could give him two cement blocks. And I could tell him to to hold a cement block in each hand. And he could do it for a while. He might even be able to hold his arms straight out to the side like that with a cement block in each hand. But not for long. That's too much weight. Very, very soon. It's too much weight. You understand that? Can't do it. The arms go down. You can't do it. Drop it. Can't do it. The same thing happens in other areas of our life. You can be faced with so much emotional strain, so many th- difficult things that happen that this system we have that holds up and faces things and responds right and can smile and can and maintain its spirit, maintain its its expectations and, and maintain its Good outlook and positive thinking—it—it it, it was too much. Pressed down, it just pressed down, oppressed. And Jesus worked on that. And, and our Lord Jesus—you know—some of the strongest words about emotional struggle in all the Bible are written about our Lord Jesus. Some of the strongest words. He understood this situation. He understood what it's like to feel tremendous oppression. He understands what it's like to have these things happen to him. And I will show it to you again. That was Luke 4, go back to Matthew 4. The heart of our Jesus is to take care of these matters and to heal them. This is in the 23rd verse. And it gives us here again a picture of the scope and of the purpose of Christ's ministry. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And of course in, in, the, uh, in our Bible it says there, the word for disease at the last part of that verse is dolentias in our Bible. And that is that the difference between sickness and dolentias is that the sickness is physical and the dolentiousness is emotional. It's that it's it's that weight upon the mind that is hard for a man to carry, for a young person to carry. And that this same verse, this same verse Matthew 4:23 is in the book of Matthew two times. In the Greek Bible, it was word for word identical in chapter nine and in chapter four. But the translators, when they got to chapter nine and started reading through that thing, and they forgot they already translated verses. It's just a few words different in your Bible in verse nine from in verse in chapter nine from chapter four, but it's exact same words, word for word in Greek. So this verse is in your Bible twice of well, what Jesus did here: disease here, nervous weakness, emotional damage. There's much physical healing in the New Testament. But tonight we want to focus on the damage to our hearts. The wrongs and the misunderstandings and the losses that so much affect our emotions. When I was a boy, the fellows used to run around the schoolyard and say this. In kind of a chant that they had, they said, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me. Later on, I heard this in life. Many, many years later, I heard this phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will break my heart. And I found out that that was true. That was more true than the other one. Words will break your heart. It just depends what those words are. Break your heart to a damage that's very, very difficult to repair. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can break your heart, and it's easier to repair the bones that it is to repair of the heart. I have, I have learned that. It happens many times. In how many different ways possible, but the result is always the same, that when the heart is broken, relationships are broken. And that's the danger of it. That's the problem of it. And to make that worse yet, when our relationships are broken, they end up being broken with the people that we needed the most in our lives. And more often than anything else, we're at relationships with our own parents. And That is the most serious of all broken relationships and the most common. And I don't know how many times I've heard that expressed in the four days so far that we've been together in this Bible school. And I heard it on the phone again today. I heard a father to me what I did to my son when he was young. Dale, it's what I did when I was young, when he was young. And, and now we can't get him back. And, and now he is, and Dale, now, now, I just had to listen to that today. And that is the most serious thing that can happen to somebody when relationship with daddy and mama is damaged. And oftentimes we as daddies cause that. Maybe not always, but many times it's so. Now, I know that, and you probably know, too, that the Bible does not use the word pain, or does not use the word hurt, healing for the hurting. We have hurts in our lives, we have pains in our lives. But it does use words that indicate that something very, very serious has happened to us emotionally or in our hearts. It uses the word offenses. And the word offenses is a very, very interesting word in its original language there. It's a story of a person walking down through like a path in the woods or in the jungle, in our case, you, you would say uh, probably the woods or the forest, or I don't know what you have up here in Iowa. I don't see very many trees here. Somebody must have cut most of them down. They, need, they needed cornfields up here, so there go the trees. But someone's walking through this path, and as you're coming down the path, someone's standing back here and they have a sapling about so long, and right when you get there with your feet, they take that sapling and stick it in front of you, and you your foot grabs that, your toe grabs that, you trip right over that thing, and down on your face you go. It's taking a sapling and putting it in someone's path. That is the word picture that a Greek person understands when they read this word here, escandalizo. In Spanish, that's escandalizar, which means to make somebody trip. So, Spanish is the same as Greek there. And your word says offenses. And can you imagine causing an offense? The Bible says if you cause an offense to a little one, better, millstone on the neck. And so what are you doing? Here comes a little one down there, down the, tripping down the, the lane, and he's so happy, and he's singing a song, and he's, he's just rejoicing. You take a stick and stick it out there. You're the dad. And down he goes. And how do you think that person feels when they, when they turn around and look Through their tears and through the blood that's coming out their knees, and they see you standing there with that stick, and you think they, you think they don't remember that? They forgot all about it, you know. They remember that, and things won't be the same after that that they were before. And woe unto him by whom the offence cometh." And Offences come to all of us. Everyone sitting here has had offenses come. Everyone sitting here, and not literally, they'll literally stick a twig out there, or a sapling and knock you over. That, that's not literal. I mean, it could be. But there are other ways in which we both have offended people, and we cause, and we have been offended. And the Bible says, in many things we offend all, which means we all do it, which sounds so terrible. And the teachers of this Bible school say saying to themselves, uh, Brother Dale, did I offend any of my students this, this Bible school term? And the course, course director said, did, did I do anything to that course of 140 students to offend any of them? And the principals are saying, the three principals, did we do anything in this Bible school to offend? And in many things we offend all. And preachers do it, and parents do it, we all do it. We, we offend. We, we cause offenses. Some, many times we don't know we did it. And, and probably most times we didn't even try to do it. You have no idea how your wife understood the last words you said to her. You didn't know how she took it. And we probably weren't careful enough in saying it, and probably didn't think through this thing. Now, just how will little honey understand these words I'm saying? We were in a hurry, we had to get it said, we had things to do, and the phone's ringing, we had to get out of here and get done. And bang, she gets to the, end, end, the other end of that, and we're finished. Isn't it true, Brother Elvin? Isn't it true, Brother? Ask your wife if you're not quite sure. In many things we offend. All of us do. And yet, these offenses many times live a long time in our hearts. So we may have been guilty of causing someone else to trip, causing someone else to be offended, or maybe we were the one who was offended, and most likely both. And you've also heard this, that those who are hurt create more hurts. And those who are offended cause more offenses. And those who are damaged cause more damage. That's why it must be healed. That is why. Now, would you allow me to take you a little journey here? In many ways I hesitate to do this. But I'm going to take you on a little journey and, and discuss several reasons why we have so much emotional damage in our hearts, even people that are very young. I don't know. You, you see, I'm not, I'm not going to teach a psychology class here tonight, but, but we are psychological beings. There, there is a psychic in each one of us. We do have minds, and our minds affect us. I'll just give you one example. Uh, I'll just give one example of of how how our minds affect us in what we do, think, and act and react. Okay, so I was in a lot of serious car accidents when I was young. And and that banging and clashing and screaming and the steel against steel and the rolling and all that that goes on, that gets in your mind, gets in there. So now you're sitting in your study and you're preparing a sermon for Sunday morning, and all is quiet and everything is good in the house, About that time out in the kitchen, someone drops a pan on the floor. And this rattling, banging, clashing of metal. And immediately, the, the, the mind just is rolling over in the car and smashing into things. And no, it was a pan on the kitchen floor. That's all it was. But in the mind... There's a whole world of things going on there. It's so all that comes flashing back. And, and many times, my wife, if that happens, I hear her say from the kitchen, I'm sorry, Daddy. It- it's okay, Daddy. I- I'm sorry, Daddy. She knows the effect that has on me. And after 50 years of marriage, she still knows. It's surprising how long that lasts. It's just one of the things the mind does to us. And so that happens in all kinds of ways. And when we are hurt by something, when something does a serious has a seriously damaging effect on us, it doesn't take much at all to recall all of that with the, with, the, with the vividness of the day that it took place, as if it was happening all over again, when no one may be intending such a thing at all. But there are things that cause hurts in our lives. And the list is very, very long, and I can't take up that much time tonight. So, I thought I'd take this great big list and reduce it to just four things. And when I reduce it to four things, I'm a little bit trepidatious about doing that, because what is in your life tonight might be the fifth thing that I don't have on this list. But I trust that if you listen to these four things, the Spirit of our living God and the power of the Spirit of God in this assembly tonight can help you understand something that I don't have said here. I'm not saying it, but you understand it. He gives you an understanding of it. So if I may, these four things. What may have caused the offense, the hurt, the tripping? What was the sapling that put you on your face in your life? Well, the foremost cause of all hurts in our hearts Begins in the home. And the most common cause of the damaging things that happen in a person's home, in the house, is the damages that are caused by an angry father. And many times, not always, in a home where there is an angry father there is, many, many times, a domineering mother, not always. But a domineering mother and an angry father can cause tremendous damage to their children, and do cause tremendous damage to the children. And that is the concern, that is the thing that young people bring to us more often than anything else, the anger in our home. I've heard it several times at the Bible school this, this week, here, right here inside this building, from precious people in, the, in this assembly, anger in the home. And anger is terrible because one of the things that anger does, besides the loudness of the voice, anger is a, is a terrible way to let somebody know that you reject them. Out of my life with you. I, I can't put up with you. This is what you cause in me. When you're around me, this is what you get. So you deserve to be Place someplace else. You you deserve to be removed. I've got to do something to make space for me, and you you don't belong in that space. That's what you're saying to a child when you're angry to a child. That does tremendous damage. And I will say this, that the child doesn't, doesn't understand that, doesn't react to it, doesn't rebel against it when they're five years old. But there comes a time when a child grows up, and realizes he's a person. And realizes that this anger, this ridicule that's been going on in the home is against his person. And when that day comes, you lost your child. When that day comes, there's a, there's a, a division between you and your, and your home. And it's a very, very serious thing. It's a form of rejection. And it even gets worse when you hear these words with the anger. That I wouldn't doubt some of you have heard. And I'm sorry if you heard it. I know that the person who said these words did not know what they were saying. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Get out of this house and stay out. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But some of you have heard those words, they're very similar to it. Boys and girls. Get out of this house and stay out. And that's, that, that's terrible. <laughs> and there's no person alive, there's no child that knows what to do with that. They may have heard enough of times to know that there was only a certain degree of meaning in it. It was just simply a, an uncontrolled reaction by somebody who could not handle the situation. And they got angry and upset because they didn't know what else to do. And because there was no spirit of control in their lives and because they didn't have, an, they didn't have any other recourse... They didn't have any other answer. There was no other solution. So you get angry. And of course, that has never solved anybody's problems. I once learned of a Japanese trainer of fighters. You know, a karate expert. And he's training. He just takes the best of the best to train them, this Japanese uh, fighter, old gentleman. So he had this one young fellow there. He was powerful. He was a he he was you know a tr- a tremendous body on that fellow. And he was training this fellow with all that he knew to train, and he wasn't satisfied with the fellow's development. So, one day, he in training, he took his hand and slapped him across the face, the man he was training. He looked at him and said, I want you to tell me which fingers of my hand hit you and what part of the fingers did it. And the man thought a little while and answered very correctly. And then he said, I've got to tell you what your problem is. You're never going to be a good fighter. Because you are angry when you fight. You can't be angry. You must be thinking. I thought to myself, what? What? But then I got to thinking. When did ever when did ever anger do any good? And I'm not advocating fighting. You should never be fighting. There's only no one kind of fight that we are involved in. The Bible tells us what it, that it is. There's a fight of faith you're going to hear about it tomorrow morning. That's the only fight we can have. That's the only fight that can be in us. The fight of faith. That's what the armor is for. No, nothing else. Just, so now I corrected that illustration so you don't go home with the wrong idea. Ridicule. Being ridiculed when you're young. You're sitting here tonight, and you were bedwetter until You were six years old, twelve years old. You went to bed at home. You were made fun of. People learned about it. Uh, you, uh, you you went through life with that stigma hanging over you. Your other brothers and sisters who were younger than you were—they didn't do it. They didn't have that problem, but you did. So it's, a, it's a terrible thing. And, and, and a mother, father, a wise mother, father will try to protect that child and try to take care of that and, and try to put those sheets someplace that, the, that, that not everyone in the neighborhood driving past can see it. And they'll try to find some way to, to uh, protect you with that problem that you have. And others mock and laugh, make fun of or punish And some people sitting here may have gotten a weapon every day until they quit it. And I will assure you that that will not quit it. It will probably make it worse. Or other things happen in your life. There are others in your family that did well in school. The report card looked great. You brought your report card home. You were scared. You, you You were shaking on the bus, shaking in the back of the van, having to take that report card home. You knew what was going to happen when it got there. And you already feel bad. And now you're going to soon be feeling worse. And in whatever way that I, I don't know your situation, somebody was ridiculing you and you were put down for it. And nothing that you could do could make up for it. Or while you were being sassed at and sensing that rejection, the neighbor children right across the driveway or across the road, you heard your parents talking very, very highly of them and how great they are. And you wish you could do something to, to be like they were. What, what could I do to be like my neighbor children? Uh, my, my neighbor friends, and I like them. But, but they're, they're great, and you're not. And so many things like that happen. And your appearance doesn't match up. And someone's rejecting you for that. or who, And you can't change it. You're insulted. So you either learn to fear your, fear your father or, or else you learn to hate him. You want to leave home, but there's no place to go. Did you realize that in the United States of America, the number two reason, if you put reasons in order for why people choose to get married, reason number two, the, the second Most frequent reason why people marry in the States is to get out of disappointing home situations. And so we get married so we can escape it. And I will tell you that that poor marriage is off to a rough start. When you're trying to get married because it's not going well at home. And of all things that cause people to trip and to fall and to damage, Damaged emotionally, this is number one, what happens in the home. And there is much, much more to be said about that. Church tensions is a second reason for problems in people's lives and disappointments and lack of confidence and they can't trust others and their hearts are upset and some lose weight and some can't eat and some overeat. You come home to the church meeting and you go to the refrigerator, you empty that out, And now the pretzel box, and now the Cracker Barrel, and now the who knows what, and and you you go to bed with all that stuff in there, and and nothing can be digested, and uh, all you did was uh, step the scales tomorrow morning and find out. And those things happen to one preacher after another, and one person after another. It happens many, many, many times. Church tensions. You may feel innocent in what is going on, but the congregation is falling apart. And you just moved there two years ago, and you thought this was going to be the answer for your family. And after all the troubles you had at the place before, you came here, and it was so, just exactly what you needed. And you were so glad for it. And the young people began to fit in, your children, Sunday school, and youth group, and everything was so good, when all of a sudden you found out what you did not know. It looked like the answer. Well, I would ask you just two questions. Why did you move to that place in the first place? Why did you leave where you were? And I have another question, what all did you put in that moving van when you moved over there? And when you loaded that moving van and put all that stuff in there, and I'm not talking about the garden rake and the lawnmower. When you got to the new place, you unloaded all that stuff at the new place. Whatever you loaded in there, you unloaded it. The feelings, the struggles with the ministry, the uh, arguments you had with your wife about where you should end up. Now, all went in that moving van. And your disappointments in the school board. And what the teacher did to your Johnny in sixth grade. And all that went along to the new location and was unloaded over there. Things went well for a while. But church problems are very, very serious. And here we have these people in the congregation. I just got this phone call yesterday. This was from another state. Also, quite a distance from here. But in this congregation, there are those by the Spirit. Let the Spirit lead. The Spirit's in control here. This, everyone has the Spirit of God in them. Let, let the Spirit of God take control. Let, let them be responsible to, to 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 God Himself. And anything that's done to establish some parameters or to supply some order or to to try to bring some loose ends together and come to some kind of continuity, some kind of identification, some kind of oneness, some kind of testimony? No, violating Spirit. And there are others in the congregation that, that just see that there's drift, that we can't keep on going like this. And so we have this happening, and someone's caught in the middle. And they say, I don't like the attitude here, and I can't quite feel good about the attitude over there. And, If only we could sit together and pray together and humble ourselves and stop this missing each other, shooting across the lane at each other. And we're in this church situation and it's debilitating. Poor young people don't know what to do. And that can go on and on. We won't continue with that. Then there are other kinds of hurts. Some of us here will understand what I mean when I say that some of us are hurt from a past life of sin, a life of addiction, a life of strong temptations, which might maintain within us feelings of guilt and fear and consequences that we are still reaping. We sowed that back there. And maybe we have some sense of forgiveness. Maybe we have some sense of being relieved of that, of the weight of that, of the guilt of that, and yet the reaping continues on. I can tell you stories of things that I needed to reap over 30 years after I sowed the seed. I sowed it. It was wrong. It should not have been done. Wisdom would have said, don't do it. But I did the wrong thing. Having been hurt myself, I was fairly good at hurting others. And so that was sowing a wrong seed. And, and, and then over 30 years later, a great big combine goes down through this field and starts harvesting all that stuff. And the bin back here is filling up with an awful harvest, an awful crop, an awful load of seed. And I've said already... I'd like to harvest all that that I can so that none of that seed remains so we can plant a new crop as soon as possible. Do you understand that? But a life of sin causes that. And I always would would have thought if you had asked me that I was afraid of nothing. I'm not afraid of lightning or I'm not afraid of a snake. You can't scare me with a wolf or a dog. I'm not afraid of darkness. I'm not afraid of height. I don't know what I'd be afraid of. So I thought I was fearless until one day I made a discovery. I was—I lived every day afraid of failure, fearing that I'd fail one more time. And nothing you can do about it. And, and the more you fear that, the, 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 the tighter is the web that you're weaving around yourself. And there's no freedom in it. You can't get out of it. You're locked in it. And it's prideful and it's selfish. But I cannot fail. And no one can see it fail. And it has to be done right. It's a terrible way to live. And if you're, if you're here today and you say, I've got to do better than the rest of my class. I've got to sing in, my, in, in, in back here in second base better than the other fellows are singing in second base. I've got to hit those high notes in soprano. My voice cannot break while I'm holding that Tone. And my dear, my dear young person, you can't live that way. There's no one that can live without mistakes. There's no one can live without sooner or later needing the help of others. There's no one that could say, look at my performance, it's just great. There's no one. You can't do it, I can't do it. And so, dear people, these things cause great harm in our lives. It might be a desire in our hearts to return back to that kind of sinful life that we had one day before. And we're afraid we might do it sometime. We're we're afraid that in a weak moment uh, our wives are going to find out. Our children are going to find out. The church is going to find out that I'm back there again. My wife and I just had a very, very serious interview. (laughs) Should I say it, Mother, or should I not? You know, I'll just say this. This, this will be the safe side. We'll keep it on the safe side. Our publishing houses in America are publishing too many books of life stories of people that are still living. We're publishing too many success stories of people that come out of the dredges and come out of the dregs and come out of the off-falls and come out of the rondas and come out of the ditches. And now they're doing great and now they found freedom and now they're serving the Lord and now it's all victory and blessing. And these books are about people that are less than 30 years old. And so it is that we just had an interview with a precious father and mother. And people around the nation are reading the story of this great conquest and superlative life. And it's back today where it was before the book was written. Asking for help. How do we get back out of this? And there's that fear. Anyone that's lived that deeply into sin, like some of us have, we live in constant awareness that. And that's why my sin, with the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord of my soul. If that's not your experience, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult road. If you don't know that, it's a short trip, it's a short trip back to it. It's a short trip back to it. If we're not giving continual testimony of the grace of God in our lives, if our lamp is not bright and trimmed and burning, if we're not witnessing for our cause and for our Lord, if we don't have a word to say for our Lord Jesus, it's a short trip back. Sometimes there are sins that have legal consequences. Many times sin leaves us with economic crisis. All these things do great damage. I'm going to move on to the fourth thing real quickly here. I talked about home life before. This time is a little bit different. I'm going back to the home again. This time is a different kind of struggle. The parents are lads, They cannot communicate. They shout one to another, Perhaps they fight. There is not peace in our home. Children growing up. At first they don't know there's anything wrong with it because that's the only thing they know. They, 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 they don't know that that's, that that's wrong. They don't know that my parents are, are, are a bad example. They don't know that that's not the way homes are. That's the only thing they know about their mother and daddy. So when they're this size here, they, they just kind of live with it. They cower down and, and, and they, they accept all these abrasive comments and, and they see this tension going on. But they don't know there's anything better to live. Someday they're going to find out that not all homes are like that, and no home needs to be like that. And children struggle. We cannot find a church to go to. Daddy will not accept authority of the pastors. Yet he desperately tries to wield authority in the home, but it doesn't seem to work. And my sister just left home, and my brother found a girlfriend downtown, and our home is falling apart. And what's going to become of me? That story is just repeated on every block. Every story is different, but these elements are found there and hearts are hurting. I, I'm, I'm aware of that. How does this offense and pain reveal itself in my life? Well, there, there are all kinds of ways. And again, no one has seen all the clinical signs of a wounded heart. It's not possible to catalog all that. I won't be able to do it tonight, but I can just suggest a few things, and they ask the Spirit of God tonight and through the prayers of the saints that are praying to help us understand the things in our own lives that I'm not saying here in this paper. One of the things that happens when we have a wounded spirit is that there's, there's, there's going to be separation. We're going to do all we can to put a separation between us and the people that wounded us. The person that got that stick and stuck it out there in the path, we're going to do something to, to put some kind of separation or some kind of space between me and that person. People just do not go out inviting, go out looking for more of that kind of treatment. They tend to do something like, like this about it, and, and apartarse from that kind of thing. So daddy comes in one door, and the sun goes out the other one. They can't be together. The person who's wounded is going to be off by himself someplace. He's going to spend time alone. He's going to be away from home if possible. If he has a vehicle when he's 16 years of age, he's going to have a reason to go away every night. He's not going to be home. And if he comes home, he hopes the rest of the family's in bed when he gets home. And hopes his dad leaves for work in the morning before he has to see him. Those are going to happen. And the young man's going to end up in a far country, if you ever heard of that story in the Bible. And we look for our own turf, and when I was young my own turf was, was a unique thing because since I did not go to a church school, I went to a public school, some of the people that hurt me the most in life were not in that school. I had no trouble in school. I was not hurt by people at school. I love school. I could not stand the three months of summer vacation. I look forward to September when we go back to school again. That was my turf. And and there I could do things I couldn't do anywhere else. And there no one made fun, and there no one mocked, and there no one ridiculed, and there no one condemned and said, you'll never amount to anything. And there there were honors and awards, and there were banquets, and there were special meetings and you're called in there. and, And there is a Rotary International, and there is Lions Club. And, and and it goes this way, and so somebody was worth nothing. All of a sudden, finds a place where life is working pretty well, but that was so damaging. That was the wrong place to find it. That was the wrong place. Where was the church? Where was the truth? Where was brotherly love? Where where was where was true fellowship? Where was that? And this is not true. River International is an interesting organization, but there's not fellowship there, and 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 you could eat uh, ham with the. Uh, Raising gravy in, in, in an honor banquet. But when it's all over, you're the same person you were, and you get back home again. It doesn't meet the need. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't heal the heart. That was my turf, my own turf. If Dad's in one church, I'm going to another one. What he stands for, I'm going to stand for something else. It's very very common. You wonder why the children go off into some other kind of fellowship, some other kind of s- s- church situation. Not hard to figure out when you realize that there's a great breach. Another matter that comes up when there's wounds on the heart is communication becomes closed. No heart to heart fellowship. The heart is closed to love. It's the most dangerous place to be in life that I can imagine heart is closed to love and cannot accept nor receive love from others. I'll take care of it myself. I can prove to you that I don't need you. I'm not weak enough, small enough. I'm not little enough to need your help. I can handle this thing. I am capable of doing it. I'll stand the pain. I'll face the difficulty. I'll handle it on my own. It's a terrible place to get to. And yet somebody somewhere though you're not telling your parents about it, you're not telling your pastors about it, you're not talking about it among your brothers and sisters, somebody, someplace is going to hear your story. Probably a girl in town, or a young man that lives across the road. And the person hears that story, accepts you in that story, there's something like this is going to happen. And where relationships should have been, they're broken. And where they should not be formed, there they are, winding tightly around us. Many, many people can testify to what you just have heard. Your person was violated. And so you will earn your acceptance. You will excel. You will prove what you can do. But, but things begin to happen. And, 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 and we just wrecked the car. And money is short. And life caves uh-huh. in. And I don't really have anything I can do about it. And for as much as you tried, you couldn't put it together. I wish I could tell you tonight that you don't need to prove anything to anybody. Our Bible Institute is a little different from yours in that we have assignments. and They must do their assignment sheets every day in every class. And that's four classes a day, and that's four assignments to turn in. It takes a lot of time to fill in those sheets. So some assignments might take a half an hour just to do one assignment. And then, the last week of Bible school, there's a final test for your course. And, and these students are somewhat fearful of that day. And everybody wants to do well. And some students are afraid that it's not going to go well. And some people are convinced that they have to have 100% on their final examination. And I'm not interested in that. I don't want the students to feel they must have 100%. The only thing I want them to do is understand the lesson. The only thing I want them to do is remember what we tried to teach them. And so I tell them before the test something like this. I want you to help me today to see what kind of a job I've done teaching. And when I see the results of your test, it's going to help me to see what I taught correctly and what I didn't, what I got across got clearly to the students and what I didn't. If you don't remember the answer to the question, just look at it like this, Brother Dale should have done a better job. And if he would have taught that thing a little clearer and would have emphasized that a little more, it would have, you know, we remember we which file we put it in and which folder we stored it away and we could just pick that right out of there, open it up and there's the answer and write it down in our sheet. But, but Dale wasn't effective enough just look at it like that. And then when we're all done, we'll take a look at the answers that they should have been, and then you will learn from that my mistake, and I will learn from it too. And both of us will learn, and we'll know the lesson better at the end of the test than we did at the beginning. Isn't that the way Jesus looks at our lives? So you worry, you are wary of authority. You cannot trust elders. You do not have confidence in anyone who differs from yourself. No one's allowed to correct you. You cannot accept criticism. You long for grace, for praise, for acceptance, for affirmation. But you can't stand it when someone comes to you in an honest, open attempt to try to improve your life by giving you a pointer on something that you should do different. You hardly stand that. Now, I was working in a laboratory. And I was hydrostatic testing high-pressure cylinders. And I thought the job was going fairly well. But one day when I got to work, a scientist in that laboratory with a long white coat met me at the door and said, Dale, would you spend a little time with me today? I said, yes, sir, you'll be fine. He said, come along with me back to your, back, 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 back to your lab. So I walk in back, back there, and here's my machinery, and here's the things I'd finished up yesterday. And he goes in there, and he says, I've been watching you, Dale, and, and I just felt this time that we give you a couple pointers about your work. And I was starting to feel smaller and smaller and smaller. I didn't realize this was going to happen. So he started in with this process. and went down through everything that I was doing. He said, you've been doing it like this, but look at this. You've been, you, you've been getting these results. Look at this. And I was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and he was at that for two hours. And I will assure you that two hours of that from a superior doesn't make you feel very good. And when he was all done, he turned to me and said, Dale, I need to talk to you a little bit. And here's basically what he said I've been watching you in this laboratory, and I was thinking, what can we do to help this young man? I like what I see. He said, I don't have time to be here in your, in your room here this morning. I've got work to do where I am. But I just saw something new that I thought we could all benefit from in this business. And so I wanted to take some time to just see if I could help you a little. Because we appreciate you here, Dale. And I hugged my head. I didn't know what to say. Two weeks later, I walked into that office. And the owner, one of the head owners, was standing at the door to meet me. I thought, what's coming now? And he said, Dale, we, uh, we don't really feel that you should be working here in this laboratory any longer. And I thought, what's going, to, what's coming? He said, we have a, an empty desk up in the front office. And we need a replacement up there in management. As we want you to come up front there. Would you accept a job? We have a place for you. And we need you in that position, would you, would you accept that offer? My dear people, if you have a loving pastor, if you have even a father and mother that really does not know how to speak to you like they should, a school teacher, and they come to you to correct you, they come to you to improve you, they come to you because they love you, they come to you to bless you. It's only for one reason. All they're trying to do is make your life more useful to God. It's what Jesus said in John 15. We take off some of those extra branches so that more fruit will be formed than ever before in your life. If we could see it that way, if we could humble ourselves and see it that way, there'd be no end to what God could do with us. There'd be no end to our usefulness to the Lord. There'd be no end to the blessing of God upon us. If we'd see it that way, but we're hurt in our hearts and we can't accept it that way, In more severe cases, there are mental illness and crimes and drug abuse, and the only thing that's missing in that person's life is love. Where is tenderness in your life, gentleness, meekness? And though those qualities are hard to find, at the same time there is lust and an insatiable desire for a girl or for a boy, a desire to be noticed, to be sought after. And we're, at that point in life, candidates for the twin addictions of masturbation and pornography. And neither of those two things will heal us from the problems that we have. A young lady, she was having tense problems, and I was asked if we would interview with her, interview her, my wife and I. And so she came into the room, and she was kind of tense, and she found a chair on the other side of the room and sat down. Kind of plopped and slouched a bit. And just so happened the chair that she was sitting on was one of those chairs that has an arm rest on each side. And there was an empty chair on the other side of her, right beside her. And so I saw the spirit of this girl and I saw the defiance and I saw that we have, you know, kind of kind of a you know there's a cat here. And so I said to her, I said, Young lady, if your daddy would come in. And sit in this chair beside you. And your arm is on that armrest. And he would reach his arm over and touch your hand. What would you do? And with, without answering, here's what she did. Without answering, she went like this. She she did that without answering. She just just me saying it. That's what she did. But wait a minute. Supposing. That would have been a young man that came and sat on the chair beside her. Do I need to finish the illustration? What does that mean? It means that something is desperately wrong down inside here. Something's desperately wrong. Jesus came to heal this oppressive condition in your life and my life. I'd like to read a couple of verses here. Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus does something about this. Jesus understands it. Jesus knows about it. Hebrews 12, 13, And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. This is not physical healing here. Let it rather be healed. The church is the reconciling and the healing community. Love is what can change us. Love is what can change me. Love is the thing that changes us. Until we have love in our lives, everything stays the same as it was. And Jesus proved His love. We we need to ask no questions about it. I'd just like to talk to you a little bit. Listen to these few thoughts. Jesus proved His love for publicans and sinners. How did He prove it? For a publican and a sinner despised, and no one wanted to get near. And how did Jesus prove it? He proved it not by inviting them to this big banquet in His house. He proved it not by putting on some great big buffet, uh, and and asked the catering service to come in, and put in some kind of a great, great big spread for these publicans and sinners. Just the opposite. He proved His love to them by going to their houses, and sitting down at their table, and eating their food. I'm here for you. I allowed you to give me your, whatever you have for supper. It's fine, I'll eat it. And how do you feel when someone like that comes to your house to eat? We had a doctor one time come to our house had a meal with us. I suppose that's happened several times. But someone like comes and, and eats with you. And here was Jesus eating with these people. He asked a favor of a needy Samaritan woman. And he allowed a street girl to wash his feet with her tears. And he bid two sons of thunder to follow him in his ministry. And he touched lepers and went out into the night, leaving the ninety and nine to find one who was lost. Jesus did everything he needed to do to prove his love to me. And prove his love to you. And this evening, beholding you, he loves you. And he wants to heal you. Just like he did that young ruler that came to him. Kneeling down saying, Master, what good thing shall I do? Jesus loved him. Do not blame God for what has happened to you. Terrible things have happened. I'm sorry about that. I know that. I agree with that. I know it was not right. But don't blame God for it. God did not do it. And He's the only one who can heal it. But He didn't do it. And there's both mercy and grace with God. Now, you and I cannot hide our sin from Him. Nor would we want to do that. Because He knows about it. And though he knows about everything wrong we've done and every wrong reaction we've had and all the separation and all the improper, neurotic things we've done to make up for our lack of attention, lack of love with our families, though he knows all about that and understands all about that, he does not reject us for it. He does not turn us away. He does not say, get back, straighten up, prove you're right, give me six months of perfection and I'll take a look at you. He knows why you're doing it. He understands that. He does not reject us, though that's the way we've been. I don't know what your struggles are tonight, but God does not reject you. Well, then you say to me, Why did he allow all this in my life? Well, my dear heart tonight, would you tell me this? Why did God allow it in Joseph's life? Why did God allow it in Job's life? Why did God allow it in Stephen's life? They did not turn bitter. Uh, what happened to them? Why should I? Because this happened to me. You know what I'd like you to do tonight, dear, dear young person here tonight, dear daddy and mother, dear Pastor and who's struggling this evening? I would long for you to experience something. Here's what I'd like to happen. Just imagine this. Imagine this with your father. Imagine doing this with your father. Spending three days. Walking side by side with your father. And you're walking up a hill. And there's a there's a peak up there. And that hill has a name. In your community it's known as Mount Moriah. And your name is Isaac. Your father's name is Abraham. You spend three days walking side by side with him. Your daddy's kind of old for some strange reason, but you're still young, so you are carrying some firewood on your back. You're going to be doing a little camping up here. And your father's a few things with him too, but not everything seems exactly right, so let's talk to daddy about it. Daddy. Yes, son. Why, aren't we going up there to do some sacrificing? Yes, son, that's right. That's right, son. Well, we've done that before, Dad, and every time we ever did that, we always took a sacrifice along. Yes, yes, son, that's right. That's the way we always did. But Daddy... We we don't have a sacrifice. What are we going to do when we get up there? Well, well, son, uh, son, uh, son, God, God, God will provide something. When we get up there, God will provide something, son. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you had a visit like that with your dad? When's the last time you stood beside your dad, you sat beside your dad, you talked to your father like that? What a conversation. What a holy moment. What an exchange of heart. What a glorious opportunity to talk to daddy like that. When's the last time? And, and you're Isaac. And Abraham is God. There's all kinds of things in life that are perplexing to you and too big for you and too hard for you. And there's no possible way you can get through it alone. Father. Yes, son. I, I just made a mess of it, Father. Do you see what I did? Yes, son, I, I noticed that, son. What? what it's all right, son. Between you and I, we'll take care of it. It'll be all right. I'm glad you mentioned it. I was glad to hear it from you. And any time you have trouble, just feel free to tell me. I can take care of the things you can't take care of. I just would like if you trust me. Son, if you made any mistake at all, it was simply this, son. It would have been good if you had talked to me about it beforehand instead of afterwards. And the next time something like this comes up, talk to me right away. And we'll help you right away. See, that's why I'm here. I'm not very far away. Whenever you need me, just tell me. I'll take care of it for you. Our son was very, very young. We were... We were feeding some pigs. Now, we weren't in the state of Iowa. We had some hogs, believe it or not. We didn't live in Iowa, but there were pigs there. And my son was very small. I suppose he may have been about three years old. And there was a trough there, and there was a five-gallon bucket of water. And I told him to take this five-gallon bucket of water and dump it in that hog trough. And without a doubt, and without a hesitation, he reached down there and grabbed hold of that handle. Of course, he could not pick up that five-gallon bucket of water. But he just dug into it like he always did. Enthusiastic and ready to try a thing that I said. When he had to handle his hand, my hand was immediately on the same handle. And the bucket of water went to the pig trough. And as his little fingers got to hold the bottom of it to tilt it over, that water went into the trough. He looked up at his daddy. (laughs) It's all done. I live like that every day. That's how I get through every day. And I wonder if you have a God like that, and if you believe He cares that much, if you understand it. I wish you could walk to Mount Moriah like Isaac did. I wish you could have a mother like Samuel had. You see, the most difficult and hurtful experience in your life is not a miscarriage in history, it's not an accident. It was not meant to destroy you or to embitter your spirit. Behind the frowning providence there hides a smiling face. God sees and knows. And God does not only see and know, but God understands. And God does not only see and know and understand, but much more, He feels it. And I know it's late enough, but would you turn to Isaiah 63? If you don't know this verse in your Bible, it's time to mark it there. Mark in that Bible of yours. Isaiah 63. In the ninth verse. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. In all of their affliction, he was afflicted. And all the time that you're hurting, and all the stuff that you've suffered, all the rejections that you felt, and all the time you wish that somebody would understand, instead of that, you got. A wrong response from others. As you were hurting, God was hurting. As you felt it, God felt it. He felt everything that you felt. He doesn't understand it and sees it. He's participating with you in it. He knows how it feels. What would God do if He would yield all this wreck and ruin and loss and hurt to Him tonight? Just say, God, I, I've had enough of this. I can't handle this anymore. I, 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 my life is warped enough. I cannot go on like this. What are the thoughts that our Father God has towards you tonight? He is not done with you because you have failed. This is exactly where He wants to begin in your life. He's not done with you. I'll tell you some more things this evening and I'm soon finished. My dear friend, I don't know who you are tonight, but someone loves you and wants to invite you to try again. And someone will give you another chance. And someone sees value in you, and, and someone wants to use you, and someone does not reject you, and someone is willing to identify with you, and someone's willing to walk beside you, and someone is willing to see you walk with them right to the center of the streets of Jerusalem right out of a sycamore tree and right into Zacchaeus' house. That's what Jesus thinks about you, just like he thought about him. That's what he thinks about me. He's very near and very available and cares very much. Someone will give you another chance. Will you allow Jesus to stand between you and that difficult problem in your life and offer you his help and grant you a holy harvest of precious fruit Because he cares, let that life alone this year also. I will come and take care of that tree, that life. I will care for it and prune it and dung it and fertilize it. I'll take care of that. Give give that to me for one year. Will you let me have that life for one year? Will you let me see what I can do with this dear young man for one year, this dear young lady? Yes, give may try. It was a cold winter night. Snow was blowing in the state of Pennsylvania. We had a two story house, a chimney going up through from the base from the first floor up through the house to the to the roof I was in bed could not move I could not move my head from one side to the other I could not talk I could not go to a doctor I couldn't get out of bed to go to a doctor three dear brothers from a holy congregation of precious worshiping souls, drove through that snow and got stuck in our driveway, couldn't get in the driveway that night, had to walk through the drifts to get up to the house, walked up the steps to that bedroom to see what they could do for a person that was in very, very low condition. They read the story of that parable in Luke 13 of the barren fig tree. And then they get on their knees and ask God to give a second chance. And we're done praying. The three brothers go on their, knee, their feet around that bed. And the one looked at me and said, Brother Dale, the Lord will raise you up from this bed, and you will go and preach the gospel. Another brother said, when the sun comes over the horizon tomorrow morning, you'll be getting out of this bed. And so there was peace in the bedroom that night. And there was a, it was a little easier to sleep that night than some nights. So there were not the hallucinations Fever was so high. The temperature was so high. The mind wasn't working. Next morning, the dawn came. And the family began its activities. And I was in that bed. and I just kind of felt something very, very warm. On that cold morning, I felt something very, very warm. I just was very warm. And I called my wife. I said, "Could could you get these covers off of here? And it's... That was unusual, but she took off the covers. After a while, I said to her, uh, "Could, could you help me swing my feet out over the side of the bed? And she helped me put my feet over the side of the bed. And I stood up, got out of that bed, and walked down the steps downstairs. And that was the end of the problem. Tonight, there's someone here that needs another chance in life. It's gone as far as you can take it. You've lived it as long as you can live it. You've stood it as long as you can stand it. And you believe Christ tonight. You believe His words. You believe His care. You believe His love. You believe that He knows about it. You believe that He appreciates you. You believe that He has a call upon your heart and a claim upon your life. And you believe that He has a place for you in His kingdom, though you don't know what it is. And in regards to what your school teacher said about you, Dale, no one will ever understand any word that you say, I was told when I was a grade six. You'll never be a public speaker. I have never tried to be a public speaker. This is not about but it's not about eloquence. We heard it tonight. It's not in the wisdom of men's words, it's in the power of God. And that power God has for you and has for me. Regardless of how messed up your life has been and how much of a failure you think it has been and how many mistakes you have made and how many people know all about it, there's one more that steps up and says, let it alone this year also. I'll take over that life. I'll take over that young man. I'll take over that young lady. Let me have a chance at it. I will love. I will care. I have plans. I know what to do with that life. I will turn them into a useful vessel. I will put them back on the potter's wheel. I will create an image there, a vessel that I can use. Will you do it tonight? Will you give him a chance? Will you give Christ Jesus a chance tonight to take your life, and change you, and bless you, and fill you, and heal you, and use you tonight? Will you do that? Let's pray. I just pray, oh God, that You bless us tonight. I just pray, O God, that You would help us believe what we hear. I pray, O God, that, that we would mix with faith these words tonight, these gracious words of one who loves and understands and cares and feels every aching heart, and suffers when we suffer, and knows how wrong it is, and knows how impossible it is for us to change it. But, oh, God, His love and care... He sits down with us. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them, friend of publicans and sinners, calls us to himself tonight, identifies with the sons of thunder. If we choose to wash his feet with our tears tonight, we choose to have him lay his hand upon us and say, Be thou healed. We choose him to take charge of these lives and choose him to bless us with that assurance of his presence of His love to us, of His desire to help us, improve us, so we'd be fruitful for His honor and glory. Dear God, aren't there some lives tonight that you'd like to claim? Aren't there some precious people tonight that you would like to heal, O God? Would you come this evening and speak to us and touch us, give us the courage to believe that you'll take care of us tonight, O God? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And as we sing this precious hymn, would you just come, if you'd like to just give it to God tonight. Just, just like to pour it out like water before God tonight. you just like to hurry and place it upon His arms tonight. Let Him fold you and hold you and take care of you tonight. Won't you come to Jesus tonight with the problems that are in your life as we sing.
1: when I survey the
0: tonight and
1: brother